Hi, this is Gary Meese with the case against. It's going to be episode 61. And we're going to continue with uh, Jesse Miskelly's Bible confession. And briefly, this is the confession that he gave to his defense attorney. And he put his hand on the Bible the whole time, I guess, to show that he was telling the truth. Uh, he gave this confession after he had uh, confessed to two deputies uh, the day he was sentenced to prison. As they were taking him to prison, he, w he was confessing to them. They told their, they filed a report on it. His attorney, Dan Stidham, decided he was going to uh, uh, find out what was going on with this so he talk, he goes and talks to Jesse and re he records it and the recording was later revealed in later court proceedings um, and as we've seen that he Miskelly describes how he uh, Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin went into the, the woods uh, on May 5th 1993 woods known as Robin Hood Hills uh, in West Memphis, Arkansas and killed three little eight-year-olds Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers. Uh, Miskelly becomes more forthcoming about his own role in this. Uh, in his initial confessions he tried to minimize his involvement, but it was still sufficient. You know, he still participated in the killings. It was, it was, it was obvious from that, that confession, but later confessions he talks more about his own, his own role, including beating up, in particular, Michael Moore to the extent that, not that he says this, but you know, Michael Moore was essentially beaten to death he did drown. Uh, Stevie Branch also drowned. Christopher Byers died of multiple causes, but among other things, he bled to death from a horrible uh, castration-type wound uh, that Jason Baldwin performed on him with a knife or a sharp, a sharp-bladed object. It was probably the knife he threw into the lake behind his trailer. I'm going to be reading from my book, Where the Monsters Go. Uh, it's a second volume in a two-volume set. The first volume's Blood on Black. Uh, there's a revised, condensed, combined version called The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. All these books are available on Amazon in print and Kindle formats. And so, Miss Skelly tells Dan Stidham, oh, by the way, I was just curious the, the other day, and Dan Stidham was making a big deal. He's talked about, you know, I have some sympathy with the difficulties of getting a book out. What many things get in the way. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do. And, and, it, and particularly if you've got other responsibilities, it's, sometimes it gets, it's, gets to seem almost impossible. Uh, just about the time you settle down, here comes 
something else to grabs your attention that you immediately have to take care of. Uh, obviously, some people are better about this than others. I'm not the best myself, but Dan Stidham's been talking about producing a book for uh, pretty close to a decade at least, and uh, he acted as if uh, early last year, he acted as if he was going to have this book out just uh, he's gonna. He's got a new. He had a new editor, and he's gonna have this book out. Uh, I think called Harvest of Innocence. I think it was, which is not a really a good title, but Harvest of Innocence. Um, and uh, he was gonna get this professional to help him out, and they get it crank, cranking out. They get it cranked out and get it one get it done finally. Uh, and he was talking as if it would be done by the end of last year. And no book. And I haven't seen, uh, you know, I was trying to find his uh, Facebook page on, on the book. And I can't find it, but maybe it's just me. Uh, or maybe I'm delusional. Maybe there was not a Facebook page, but I seem to recall that there was. And I wonder if he's just simply given up on the project. Uh, and I, as I say, I have some sympathy with, with that. But uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's really quite curious that he made such a big deal about it in a book for so long and then ultimately doesn't produce anything. But he's not the first person in the world that's done that. And I'm, I'm probably doing a version of that myself with some other things I've I've said about one you know different projects I'm working on that just don't don't pan out for whatever reason. Anyway, uh, Maciel is describing what happens, and he says after they done throwed them in the water and stuff, I didn't see what they'd done with their clothes, but when I seen them throw them in the water, that's when I left. Now he's talking about Jason and. Uh, Damien throwing uh, the little, three little boys into the water. They were nude. They were bound in a very peculiar fashion. Um, and two of them had been attacked with a, a sharp object. Uh, one to the point that he was already dead. Virtu he was virtually dead by the time he was thrown into the water. If he was, if he was not totally dead, he was very, very close to it because he did not drown. Uh, asked, what time was it? I'm, I'm, I'm going to say about 7.30. I left by myself. Damien and Jason stayed there. I don't know what they'd done with the clothes. Well, after I'd done seen what Jason did to, I don't know which boy it was, but he cut his penis and everything, and I was still mad, and I still had whiskey in my bottle. I walked down the street drinking whiskey, and all of a sudden, I just busted it on the overpass. I went back the same way I came, up up under by Lakeshore where I busted it was at Lakeshore by the Lakeshore where between Walmart and Lakeshore over that overpass. I busted it there. I was underneath walking. I didn't walk over it. I just walked underneath on the grass and stuff all the way through. That's when I busted the bottle. I just threw it and hit the side. Now, this overpass he'd be talking about would be 
the overpass. Uh, Lake Shore is on one side of Interstate uh, Interstate 40, right before it joins I-55, and uh, it was at that time. It's it was it's in a different location now, but in 1993, uh, uh, Walmart was. At least the last time I was there, where the Kroger store was, the last time I was there, something else could be there now, but I suspect the Kroger store is still there. Um, and across the way, on the north side, uh, is you know there's kind of a field, and then there's Lakeshore Lakeshore Trailer Park, which is a fairly large trailer park. Um, so. Uh, Jesse's saying he he can't he went back the same way that he came. So basically, they went under. He went down. You know, they left they left Lakeshore, went down by the overpass, went underneath, went across to the service road, went across the interstate, went over the service road, went down to. Um, Robin Hood Hills, and he's he's going back the same way. And he's he was mad. He had some whiskey. According to this story, he had some whiskey. He'd gotten Vicki Hutchison to purchase it for him. It was a Evan Williams specific brand, and because uh, he wasn't old enough to buy whiskey on his own, Stidham asked, "Did you throw up?" You told the officers that you threw up. Miskelly um, consistently stated he got sick or dizzy from drinking. When officers asked him if he threw up, he said he had. But now the story changed. <coughs> no, I got. I was dizzy. I walked straight home. I got went home, got something to eat, and went to Johnny. And audible took me and we went to Dias so he said he didn't get sick that he was dizzy Stidham uh, everybody said you went wrestling about 730 that's about what time I got back I, I I don't know I don't know for sure but see he's saying he got back around 730 if he was at like if he was at Robin Hood Hills at say six thirty, the boys we know entered the woods around six thirty. You know, I don't know how long he, th that attack would have lasted. It might not have been that long, and he was in a hurry to leave. He could he if he he might have been out of there as early as he might have been out of there after say fifteen fifteen minutes. I mean, he might have been. Uh, on his way home at seven o'clock, and in which case he would he he could have gotten home at seven thirty. But we'll go on with this because there, there's some uh, countervailing uh, things he says that uh, indicate that uh, you know these times aren't exact anyway. But maybe it was a little bit later than that. Was it dark yet? It was getting dark. 
after I left the woods, it was getting dark. Now, sunset wasn't until, I think, 7.49. And it would not have been, it wasn't really going to be getting really dark until 8 o'clock or so. And it was going to be pretty dark by 8.15. So, if it was getting dark, it might have been later than 7.30 when he got home. But, th again, it's not exact. After I left the woods, it was getting dark. You know, when was it getting dark? While you were on the way home? When you got home? When you got in the car to go to the wrestling trip to Dias, which may or may not have happened? Uh, but to be on the road at, to Dias at 7.30, uh, Muskelly would have had to have left the woods at least 40 minutes earlier to walk home. The boys entered the woods at roughly 6.30, which would leave roughly 10 minutes from their arrival to Muskelly's departure, which would still be enough time for a very quick attack, but it's seems unlikely it was over with that fast. A later departure to Dias was likely, considering that it would have been getting dark later than 7.30, and some testimony at trial indicated a later start time. Now, Miskelly had described a clubhouse, and about the clubhouse he said, <coughs> it may not have been that place, I'm not for sure, it could have been somewhere else. I know where I got that clubhouse from, out in Highland. So he's saying he remembered a clubhouse in the woods, but actually the clubhouse was a clubhouse he was remembering from where he lived in Highland Trailer Park. Ms. Kelly told Stidham that Aaron Hutchison was not in Robin Hood Hills that day, and then he never had sex with Vicki Hutchison. Now, he was friends with Vicki Hutchison, and he'd uh, spent the night at her house to protect her, and he did chores for her. It's the nature of their relationship. I, I have no idea. Uh, Aaron Hutchison was Vicki Hutchison's son. He was friends with... Uh, Michael and uh, Chris in particular. He also knew Stevie and he uh, had described the police being you know out of the woods that day and various stories that he told. Uh, stories always changed and they were really wildly fantastic stories. Initially they sounded at least somewhat plausible but the longer he t the more times the police talked to him, the wilder the stories got. And he was he was eight years old, uh, and, and seems to have been under some pressure from his mother to do something. But it's not really clear what she. I mean, she might at some point have gotten the idea she could get a reward out of all this. I mean, that certainly seems likely. But their initial involvement in the case was 
almost purely by accident. She just happened to be at the Marion Police Station when uh, the police officer there that was talking to her about something else um, got word that these boys were dead. Three little boys were dead, and that Aaron was friends with the little, these little boys, and so that is where his involvement, th that family's involvement came from. It was really just one of those strange coincidences. Stidham asked about Vicki Hutchison. She buy your booze all the time? If I ask her, yeah. I remember now where I got that clubhouse from. From Highland Trailer Park. That's where me and Bubba go to the clubhouse, but it ain't got the sides on it no more. Stidham, what happened at wrestling that night that makes you remember that you were at wrestling, or do you know? Hit my head, Bill, I guess that's his name. The ring was up too high, and he threw me in there, and I hit my, hit my head close to the bottom of the ring. Now, this anecdote appeared several times in testimony. Uh, Miss Kelly was no longer using that, that trip to Dias as an alibi. As I frequently point out, the wrestling trip really wasn't much of an alibi. Uh, as this this confession here demonstrates uh, because he, he it's perfectly possible for him to have participated in the killings and also gone on the wrestling trip to Dias uh, he describes it that way here I am agnostic <laughs> I don't I don't know if the, if he actually went on a wrestling trip trip that evening the testimony at trial from Fred Ravel indicated that it was a trip the previous weekend that, that Miss Kelly's presence was tied to, and, the, and by, that was demonstrated in court. And it, that trip that they had talked about was not on May 5th. And so it, there was a real doubt thrown on the fact that uh, he'd gone to Dias to go wrestling at all. However, they did have a, a, a trip set up every week to go on Wednesdays to wrestle there, apparently. It's not out of the realm of possibility that he, they actually did go and that the whole business with the documentation, with the, the signed receipt showing uh, uh, Miss Kelly's presence that, that, that the previous week, along with Fred Ravel and everybody else who went, was uh, there's no doubt that the that the receipt was correct, but it may have just uh, cast doubt on a, a, an alibi, a, a bad alibi. All the better alibi would simply have just dispensed with trying to come up with a receipt uh, as proof, uh, because the receipt uh, negated the alibi. Uh, Miss Kelly also denied talking to Buddy Lucas, his friend, about the attack, and he had talked to Buddy Lucas the day after the attack, according to Buddy Lucas. Uh, it described him with uh, how he participated in this attack. He'd done so with tears in his eyes. 
and I'd given Buddy Lucas some shoes, and it was verified that he indeed he, Miskelly, uh, Lucas did have Miskelly's shoes. They didn't find anything on there apparently that tied it into the killings, but uh, you know he wanted to get rid of some evidence, and he gave it to uh, Lucas. Uh, he also got a his, his really strange little haircut that he had when he was arrested. He got that that particular day. Uh, it's indicated some sort of I, I don't know, probably certainly unconscious I think, but some sort of signal to the world that something had changed because beforehand is he had not had a particularly strange haircut. It was pretty standard. Uh, Buddy Lucas did pass a polygraph indicating that uh, he had told the truth about this just uh, talk with uh, Miskelly that day, uh, which would have been May May the 6th. It was the day the boys' bodies were found, but the bodies had not been found yet at the time this discussion went on. He says, Miss Kelly denied talking to Buddy Lucas about the attack. Uh-uh, I hadn't seen Buddy Lucas since I had my hair cut. The day I got arrested, that's the last time I seen Buddy Lucas. Now, Lucas had said Miss Kelly described the killings to him on May 6th, and as I mentioned already, he had tied, he'd, uh, tied the, the confession with uh, the haircut. Stidham, Jesse, what you're telling me is different, obviously, from what you've told me for the past several months, seven or eight months through this trial. Now, you've been telling me all along that you didn't have nothing to do with this, that you weren't there. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Stidham, why did you tell me that? Miss Skelly says, because you didn't ever tell me to put my hand on no Bible. Stidham. You've had your hand on the Bible all this whole time we've been sitting here taping this. Yes, sir. Stidham, you're holding it right now. Yes, sir. Stidham, the prosecutor wants you to testify against those other boys. What do you want to do? I, re I, I, I really don't know. I, I know, you know, I didn't cut none of them myself. Stidham. Do you want to talk to your daddy before you make any decision? Yeah, but but when they threw in them they threw them in the water, that one was still moving. The one that was cut, his penis was completely cut off. He was moving cause I saw him. Uh, this memory seemed to haunt Miss Kelly, though Christopher Byers was, as I said, dead or uh, dying. Uh, from blood loss by the time he was placed in the water. So he, he didn't show signs of drowning. So it's unlikely he would have been moving much. Uh, certainly um, he would have been aware of Michael Moore moving. He was, he was personally handling Michael Moore, so he, that would have been a different experience. And Michael Moore seems to have been knocked out fairly early on. Um, Stevie Branch may have been moving around, and it's possible that uh, Miss Kelly's simply getting the two boys mixed up, which he seems he does do a lot, 
he never does get all the names straight or the identity straight of these boys. I would safe to say he feels a generalized sort of guilt about being involved in the killings, but as far as attaching any kind of guilt to the victims, it doesn't extend even to the simple act of remembering who they are, what their names are. Stidham planned to talk to Jesse Sr. and the prosecutors about whether Jesse Jr. would testify against Baldwin and Eccles. He told Miss Kelly not to talk to anyone else. The taping concluded at 5.11 p.m. Stidham, who was still skeptical that his client was involved in the murders, told prosecutors that he would believe the confession if the broken Evan Williams bottle was found at the underpass. They immediately drove to West Memphis, arriving around 9.30 or 10 p.m. to 10 p.m. Uh, Brent Davis, the, pros the prosecuting attorney, later describes this scene. And, and mind you, this is at night. Uh, and it's, it's in February. It's not necessarily really cold, but it's probably, it's probably at least somewhat cold there. Uh, we proceed, the four of us, said Davis, to roam underneath the overpasses of West Memphis and lo and behold, find a broken bottle in the location indicated by his client. And and, and I want to make a point here that uh, he's not describing finding hundreds of broken bottles. And in fact, if there were hundreds of broken bottles there, they how would you ever pick out a, a particular shard to take to do what they do, is, which is to go to the liquor store. They found a particular bottle there, and apparently there were not enough other bottles there, broken bottles, to stand out as, as having been potentially left by Jesse Miskelly Jr. that afternoon. Uh, it's not a heavily trafficked, uh, trafficked, trafficked area in terms of foot traffic. Um it's really away from everything. I'm I'm not saying that nobody ever walks through there because obviously somebody does, but it's not you know it's not an obvious footpath. We take the lo and behold find a broken bottle in the location indicated by his client. Now this is Brent Davis talking. We we then take the bottle to a local liquor store where we proceed to spend the better part of an hour matching the bottle with certain items. <coughs> and lo and, hold, lo and behold, it matches with the brand name Mr. Stidham had indicated that we should be looking for in the first place. According to Brent Davis, Dan Stidham still was not convinced. Gitchell and Stidham went into, Gary Gitchell, the chief inspector, went into Gitchell's office, called Vicki Hutchison, and put her on a speakerphone. Gitchell told her, Vicki, I'm going to ask you a direct question. It's very important that you tell me the absolute truth. Don't hold anything back. Vicki, did you ever buy Jesse Miskelly Jr. any alcohol in the days preceding the murders? After hesitation, in a struggle to remember the brand, she told them she had bought Miskelly a bottle of Evan Williams. 
Gitchell, Stenham, uh, Brian Ridge, another uh, police detective, uh, Davis, and uh, assistant prosecutor John Fogelman all heard her confirm this. But Stenham still was not convinced. Now, Stenham kept the audio tape of the Miskelly interview, which was played at a court session as part of a Rule 37 hearing in November 2008. Uh, the hearing was part of the appeal process by Miskelly and Baldwin, in which they argued that they deserved new trials because their original defense attorneys had not been competent. And let me say that that's a fairly common... The well-known universal uh, complaint, uh, you know, there these sort of Rule Thirty-Seven type hearings are are very very common in people who are engineering appeals because if they can claim inadequate defense, and obviously if they're guilty, they didn't do well in court. If they can claim inadequate defense, they can sometimes get a new trial as a result of that. Uh, Stidham's defense obviously was, I don't think he had much of a chance. He was going to have a hard time refuting that confession. And he didn't have any way of keeping it out. And he was not able to build a case that it was coerced or a false confession. Partially because it wasn't. But, you know, a really, really top flight attorney might have figured out some way to do that. He tried. I will get, let's give him credit for trying. But his, his attempt did not work. And uh, he, uh, the, the other chance Ms. Skelly had was to build some doubt in uh, the jurors' minds about whether he was—he actually had an alibi, and Stidham, by allowing all these different witnesses with conflicting stories, and uh, to testify, and allowing somebody to testify who had tied in a this wrestling trip to a a specific date that turned out to be a different date than May 5th. And I'm not, you know, Fred Ravel had gone to police, unlike most of Jesse Miskelly's alibi witnesses, Ravel was convinced that Miskelly was innocent. I believe that I believe that he actually did believe that. He believed that Miskelly was with him on this wrestling trip. And he thought that he, he went to police to try to help out Miskelly. And, uh, and, you know, if he'd had a, a documentation showing that, yeah, he was there in bias for the wrestling on May 5th, still would not have been a perfect alibi, but it certainly would have been something you could throw in there to maybe throw some doubt into, into uh, a juror's mind about whether he was involved in the killings. But guess what? It did not work out, and a failed alibi is worse than no alibi at all. Now, I'm going to uh, sign off on this. Uh, thank you for listening. I'll be back again soon. It's off on a little side project for 
a couple of days, it kind of stretched out. My throat was bothering me. I didn't want to, you know, I hate coughing during the podcast. And if my throat is ticklish or sore, you know, I, I may not do that. I may just defer a day or two till it starts feeling better. In this case, I a couple of things going on there, but I've just deferred, deferred, deferred. But um, I'm hope, hoping, I'm constantly hoping to pick up the scheduling on this, get this wrapped up maybe before the end of the summer. Uh, uh, by the end of a pandemic quarantine, stay at home, shut down, don't go anywhere or do anything or see anybody, which I'm frankly getting a little tired of. But I'm not, I don't, I, but I'm not as tired of it as a lot of people would be. And I'm signing off from the banks of beautiful Rotten Bayou. Talk to you again soon.